I explain why that's not working. No, 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 no! Hi, this is Dale Lear, designer of TRS-80 Color Baseball, and you're listening to Coco Talk. This is Coco Talk the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Calore computer. It's time to drop your socks, grab your real-time clocks, and let's rock. Coco Talk is rocking the 8-bit world, keeping the Tandy flame alive. We may be mocked, but we'll never stop, because Coco Talk is rocking the 8-bit world. Welcome to Coco Talk episode 255. Just hanging out today, and all the bits are on. Coco Talk is rocking the 8 bit world, keeping the tiny flame alive. We may be mocked, but we'll never stop. Cause Coco Talk is rocking the 8 bit world. I like the title episode, episode ampersand HFF. So hex FF, all the bits are on. We're about to wrap eight. Didn't press the right buttons. We didn't break the internet yet. Needs more fuel. It's a, it's a good <laughs> thing the 6809 is mostly a 16-bit chip internally. So we're, we're good for another 65,000 some odd episodes. Ah. Hey, glad to be here. Howdy, folks. Welcome to the show, everyone. Woohoo! Canada takes the center square. <laughs> Bingo. Whoops, sorry. Ken to block. Howdy, howdy. YouTube says they can't hear you. Oh, well, that's probably for the best. I've got my Diet Dr. Pepper, though. Well, anybody, actually. Oh, okay. That's You can't hear the host. It's all right. I'll just use some simulated 3D Dr. Pepper. Hey, can you guys hear the rest of us? It's just Mark you can't hear? I guess I could turn this one, this other mic on. I'm not sure why I'm not coming through the stream. Welcome to rehearsal, everyone. 
And James Jones mentions too, to wrap the 16 bit, uh, we're going to have to go for 1200 years worth of weekly show. So I think we're good. Sweet. I think I might have something to do that year. I'm good for that. Well, I don't know. Okay. Hopefully they can hear me now. Uh, the switch microphone inputs. Okay. Uh, people uh, out in the chat there, if you guys can let us know if you can hear Mark now, he just spoke again. So there he is. They go, okay. They can hear you now. Ooh. Okay. That's um, well, everybody can read. Let me finish the introductions. So bottom row, left-hand corner, we have Mark Siegel. Hello. And next over, Nick Marientes. Good eye, everyone. And last but not least, Exile in Paradise, Alan. No, mostly least. Howdy, howdy, everybody. Coco. Since we're in Hollywood Squares mode here, I'm going to go ahead and take Nick Marentes to block. <laughs> Nick Marentes to block. Okay. Here's a story of some crazy old guys. Mm -hmm. Wait, that makes me the cleaning lady? <laughs> <laughs> He's sharp. <laughs> oh, let's see. Uh, jump right into Game On Challenge. Okay. Hurry up, do something. I don't think we have a Coke with thoughts. We have an oldie we can put in there. How about this one? And now, Coco Thoughts by Samuel Gimes. If I put a real-time clock in my color computer, who would I blame when I stay out too late? Welcome, everybody, to the results of this week's Coco Talk Game On Challenge of the Week, where we played Juno. We had a total of 15 participants. They were Mr. Dave6309 with 2709, Mark B with 9993, Grant B with 14197, Marcy 16960, David Craker, 18,165. Gary M, 22,444. Rich N, 25,077. You're getting echo, Mark. Low level, 25,788. L. Curtis Boyle, 25,975. Canadian Retro Things, 28,873. Jim Rye, 29,014. Sloopy Malibu, 30,460. Buck Owens, 37,364. Tasman Scott Cooper, 65,925. And the number one score this week was... AC's 8-Bit Zone with 67,054. Thanks everybody that played this week and we will see you next week. Well, there we go. That was uh, the results. Some pretty high scores at the uh, top of the scoreboard there.
um, much higher than I was able to do. Congrats, AC. It's yes. weird Buck Owens and Tasman not in the number one spot. <laughs> and, and I'm not in the dead last. And D- David Craker, now, you know, AC, what's, uh, I think Buck and Tasman are slipping or something. I agree. Um, AC's coming on with a force when he plays. He's got the uh, endurance and must be the um, trigger finger strength there because this game really killed your trigger trigger finger with no auto fire. You need to find out what kind of snacks Marcy's setting up. (laughs) My hand's still sore. Yeah, that that was a button masher for sure. Yeah, definitely a button masher. And this uh, game was based on Juno first from the arcade. A game that I never saw in the arcade. I did not either. I do not recognize it. And um, there was a... uh, got one. That's awesome. Yep. So this is the um, ad for the uh, game for the Color Computer Dragon. And apparently it's on the MC-10. No, that's just now that Federal Hill Software makes software for those. Oh, fine products for. Okay. Uh, I guess I should read these things ahead of time. (laughs) I'd love to see the MC-10 version of this. (laughs) Oh, that sounds like a challenge to somebody. (laughs) Jim Gary says, give him, give him 20 minutes. There we go. It should be out by, uh, you know, the show, the end of the show. show. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Other, other than that, uh, I, couldn't see anything um any reviews on it or high scores or anything in rainbow or um i don't know did anybody else see any reviews or anything for it uh i, I didn't find any reviews i can't remember if I, there was some in rainbow and unfortunately some of the <laughs> ocr text in the rainbow scans isn't fully complete especially on fancier ad pages and stuff so sometimes it doesn't mm-hmm. find things so Sometimes you have to actually literally go through them one by one. I went through a couple of magazines just to look at the high scores, and I didn't see anything for Juno. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, and Federal Hill Software was more famous for doing. Well, they did some card game stuff, I guess, like you know, poker type things. But most mm-hmm. of their stuff was usually business software. So this was quite a lots of a accounting programs. Yeah, they were, that's what they were famous for. So them doing a, an arcade game was was pretty impressive. Um. We go so yeah we uh played the game on thursday night and um we had a few participants and like i said uh people's uh trigger fingers were getting pretty sore by the end of the uh broadcast sloopy eventually switched over to zero hour yeah, but, I, uh, I like the 3D perspective. I mean, it didn't, it didn't go full isometric 3D, like say Zaxxon, but those little dots coming up, you steer left and right, they shift in a 3D way. They, yeah. they don't just flat move, and you can speed up and slow down so you can actually, you know, time the ships coming off from the top because you can't shoot them when they're above that horizon line. Yeah, the action looks nice, pretty smooth. It is, it's uh, a very good arcade port, I would say. I did watch a little bit of video on the actual game and. Other yeah, other than, than being taller vertically, that's pretty yeah. well the only major change. And uh, we have less of a timer on ours. It's, <laughs> I think the timer on the arcade one does, starts at 99. Yeah. So, and ours starts at what, 35 or something? <laughs> something too low. <laughs> yeah. So, 
And of course, there's the hacked ver. It's the hacked version, so it leaves an F in front of everybody's name. <laughs> so when you put your name in, it says F Ken. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, one one sad thing for me with the hack version, and I've never seen a non-hack version. That's the only one I've ever seen. But uh, the credits, I mean, I don't know if it would have just said copyright 1984 or five or whatever it was mm-hmm. for, uh, you know, Federal Hill Software. But I would really like to know who the author's name was. And, and unfortunately, if that wasn't the credit screen, it's been since erased by the hackers. So yeah. So anybody out there that might have an unhacked version of this game, get a hold of Curtis. Yeah, I mean, on my site, I try. I wasn't. I, I don't try to want to go give you know, credit to hackers all the time. I but some of the screens on my website because that's the only version I could get that was you know not cat weaseled or something for certain games. So that's the only existing copy that anybody can find. But I prefer having the ones with the original screenshots with the original author credits. I know there was a guy that had contacted me a couple of years ago. He wanted to do a, a, a website basically based on people cracking games for all platforms, and he was going to try to get a list of all the Coco crack name, nicknames and stuff like that because he thought that was an interesting history to have. And the little animated fronts they put in some of the game stuff too, but that's not really my interest. I would rather honor the original authors. Mm-hmm. I will say the the sound when you die is really annoying. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you hear that a lot. Um, I'm just actually kind of uh, amazed that like this seems to be such a well done arcade port, and yet it didn't get a lot of coverage in any of the magazines or. Yeah, I, I was trying to figure that out myself. And from what I can tell, they only advertised in a rainbow in the Federal Software ads for a couple of months. And then they took it off and it never showed up again. So if you you know got into the Cocoa and Rainbow six months after this game was released, you all you saw was it. their accounting software. Yeah. Maybe they got a cease and desist letter from somebody. Yeah, Could be. It's possible. I mean, they did name it Juno, and the original came is Juno first. So that's pretty close. Yeah. Although that didn't happen very often in those days that uh, he got cease and desist letters from ripping off game titles. Donkey King got one. Oh, did it? Yep, that's why it got renamed the King. Ah, that's Nintendo. They give cease and desist orders to everybody. Everybody, including Commodore people, this last year. Yep. They still do it. It's a, it's a time-honored tradition at Nintendo. Yeah. Well, despite <laughs> the fact that their original thing, they pirated their own game. They were only supposed to uh, have like 20,000 copies of Donkey Kong, and they went ahead and made another 40,000 unlicensed and didn't bother to pay the original programmers or something. It's on the uh, Wikipedia page. It's like, wait a minute. You guys are going to be that egregious, but that's how you started? Huh. Interesting. <laughs> Anyways, we're getting a little off topic. So uh, tips and tricks on the game. Um, Obviously, when that uh, orb is coming down, you got to shoot that. It releases the enemy astronaut. You got to capture him. And then everything you shoot after that is worth a lot of points. For a certain limited period of time. For a certain limited period of time, yeah. And you can't let him go above the horizon because then you lose him. Yeah, and he doesn't come back the rest of that wave. Yeah, he's escaped. I think the biggest thing here is that uh, use the going forward and going back to your advantage. Like you can go forward right off the start on a regular level and, uh, you know, try to get the people to come in and then start backing off once they get into where they can start shooting at you and you can shoot them because then you can kind of steer around them a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can so, escape the bullets a little bit if they're coming towards you and you back up. Yeah. And you can shoot the bullets too, which is nice. You can, yeah. That saved my butt a few times. 
One of the um, things that uh, killed me a lot is that the bullets actually kind of zigzag a little bit as they're coming down. So you think that you've gotten by a bullet and it zags over and hits you. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is you get bonus rounds too. Now in those, you'll get up to two waves of aliens and they come in two different patterns. But if you can complete an entire wave, kill them all before they fly off the top, then you get a bonus based on the number of seconds left on the timer in the bonus round, which yeah, on the, if you can do it on the very first wave of the bonus round, you get 200 points per second left on the timer. And if you do it on the second wave, then you only get 100 points per second on the timer. So you can really rack up your score if you clear off that first wave. Mm-hmm. But definitely the astronaut gives you the most bonus points depending on how many other guys you can kill. Yeah. The other information is that the original arcade game, Juno First, used a 6809. Yeah, that's right. It actually had a few. It had a 6809, a Z80, and an 8039. I assume those ones were worth a sound. Yeah, I did catch that when I was reading the entry on Clove about it. Because, like, like Ken, I had not seen the game in the arcade. I don't know how popular it was. It, it just seems to be in the Clove. Like, Clove has a rating for collectors, like how rare the machine is, and it didn't sound like it's a super rare machine. But yeah, I never saw it. It may have been I, a regional thing. Maybe it yeah, was that's just released in one part of the country or one side. Or of, got popular in one part, yeah. Yeah, one coast or the other. But uh, yeah, all in all, a challenging game. Yep. And one of the better arcade reports, I have to say, yep. from watching the, the videos and stuff there, it's uh, it's really close to the original. I really, I really would have liked to find a high score uh, list from uh, Rainbow to see what scores people were getting in this game back then. Yeah, I might have to see if I can maybe this weekend kind of hunt through the Rainbows manually and see if I can find a few in the score. Because I know when the game was released, so I can just check the next few months before their ads disappeared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't even see when the game was released, so I was just randomly picking issues of Rainbow to look. Yeah. But, yeah, so that is the game. Um, I don't know, anything anybody else wants to say about it other than uh, they should have put in a uh, rapid fire? <laughs> <laughs> so if anybody's going to hack it again, put in a rapid fire. Yeah, well, uh, basically, give me an unhacked version. I'd like to fix up the, the credits and credit the author. You know, yeah, he was mentioned on the original screen. And for um, some... but, but thanks for picking this game, Ken, because it actually forced me to catch up my webpage. So I actually got three <laughs> entries added this week, but that was one of them. So no problem. And another thing that I found really odd about it that a lot of people did comment on is the scoring is very eclectic. Like, where did the author come up with those uh, amounts for the? Um, yeah, the scoring is kind of weird. <laughs> so you got 89, 112, 247. Seems pretty random. Yeah. I, I do like the variety of aliens too because they have different flight patterns. Some of them come down in a fairly straight or diagonal line. Some of them are zipping back and forth, left and right. And there's yeah. a lot of gameplay variety in it. Like you don't get bored. And apparently from reading the uh, the advertisements there, there's 16 levels total. I don't know how far Alan got. He's actually in the chat now. So maybe you can let us know how far he got. And I, nice. I don't know what changes between them all. It's nice too, that they don't just come down from the top. Sometimes they'll disappear from the top and come in on the side from the sides at you. Actually, if you're flying backwards and they just went off the bottom, they can actually fly they, back yeah, up. Yeah, they'll and hit fly you back too. up and get you. <laughs> yeah. It's meant to be like Defender. It does loop over. 
you can yep. get to the end and it loops back. It is modeled on Defender, but it's at, on a different uh, um, 3D, like a 3D perspective. Yeah. yeah. I think you're supposed to be going along a planet's surface there or something. Juno, yeah. Juno first planet. And, and and that would explain why it's a hard game because so was Defender. <laughs> Although this has a lot less <clears throat> buttons, which is nice. There yeah, is a hyperspace in it. There's a hyperspace that if you hit the um, the space bar, you disappear for a few seconds and reappear somewhere else. But I found that to be completely useless because it tends just to waste time, and then you don't you can't finish the level because you run out of time. It might have been more useful if you had a longer uh, countdown clock. Yeah. Alan now, mentioned, he said he remembers seeing level 10. So he made it over halfway through. So hmm. I think I saw three was the highest I saw. Anyway, that uh, there's a bonus wave on the uh, left, left side. Yeah. There. So he didn't beat it. Yeah. All right. So that was the game last week. I think uh, had a pretty good turnout and. Yeah. Good high I speed game. If you if you like arcade arcade games, this is a good one. Yeah. And I even got uh, Frodo playing it on his stream this morning. So I'll have to ask him what he thought about it afterwards. <laughs> so next week's game. Okay. This one should be recognizable because we've been looking at it a few times lately. Oh, one of the AGD games. Yep. Meyer Mayer, I think it's called. Yep. So this is the one using the more advanced version of the AGD engine that Paris Serrat had just ported the last couple of weeks. So it's got some extra functionality that the original AGD engine does not. So this is a, an advanced AGD game. Yep. And of course, the AGD is the engine from the Spectrum. So this is uh, you know one of the 270 or 60 or whatever games he's ported over from the Spectrum. So this game is available for download at the World of Dragon archive or World of Dragon website. And uh, there is a couple versions that have been done. So the latest one has all the fixes in it and um, whatnot. So that's the one to find in the download section. <clears throat> What's it called again? Meyer Mayer. Meyer Mayer. M-I-R-E-M-A-R-E. Okay. It really, it really rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're you're out on a Meyer, and it's a nightmare. So it's Meyer Mayer. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a good game. Yeah, especially considering it's originally made on the Spectrum. So. Hmm. And also another announcement for the game on challenge. Um, I, let's see here. In uh, just a matter of weeks, I'm just looking at a calendar here right now. Uh, for the week ending April 23rd show, it's going to be zero hour. Oh, not that game. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, we're yeah. not going to have that loser author on the show for that one, are we? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I think we are. All our ratings tank every time he comes on. Go on, and on, and on, and on. 
Ah, crikey. <laughs> so that's, uh, yeah, so that'll be between the week of the 16th and the 23rd will be um, zero hour. So, so people actually get a chance to practice ahead of time on this one. Yep. And wow. you just have to make sure you uh, hit up some Australian website and buy a copy. <laughs> and we're going to have to, um, because there's no scoring in that game, it's going to be uh, yeah, based on uh, trying to complete it with the uh, most amount of time left over on the timer. Oh, is it? Oh, I don't. <laughs> Whatever you guys decide, I guess. <laughs> I was thinking the most interesting deaths. <laughs> yeah, well, cool. could do. No, it'll it'll be how much of the game you can can complete, or how much time you have left if you do complete it. So, now uh, we'll talk about it on the day. But I did purposely put in whereby when you do get to the end of the game. Uh, whether you die or whether you win, it pauses at that point. So you do have time to take a photo of the screen so we can get people recording the actual finish time on the on the counter. So, yeah. Also, we just got an announcement from uh, Amigos Retro Gaming here that uh, Zero Hour will be the next month's Coco Show. Oh, ah. okay. Oh, gosh. So, I'm expecting, I'm expecting well, they'll take place place in the or they'll take part in the game on challenge then yeah yeah hint hint (laughs) (laughs) worldwide exposure wow that means i'm gonna have to go get a haircut and maybe have a shave worldwide exposure like a virus that's i don't know doesn't (laughs) seem to matter your picture never changes nick no that's true i'm always (laughs) shaved That's good to hear, yeah. Because like, I know they're taping. Uh, well, it's coming up in the game on news, but I'm also just mention it now that uh, the taping for the Cocoa Show is actually this afternoon, tentatively scheduled for 3 p.m. Eastern, where they're doing Time Patrol by Mike Lustig uh, from Computerware. Uh, and then, obviously, next month, being recorded in April, will be zero hours. So that'll be cool. So probably the week after it's our game. There you go. Then they can steal footage from us. all right so that's that for the game on challenged yep and for those who have not picked up zero hour yet um it is playable in emulator so you don't have to have a physical coco 3 of course that's more fun and you can get it at nickmorentis.com his website they'll see a zero hour uh big banner click on that and then the order is down near the bottom of the page and if you are playing it on real hardware you need a coco 3 with 512k a joystick and either a 6809 or a 6309, it'll run on both. And it will run a little bit faster and smoother on the 6309, I should mention. Though it runs perfectly fine on the 6809. But the 6309 doesn't give you an advantage because I would assume the clock counts down faster too. Nick, does it? Uh, I don't know how you did the um, timer. No, I don't think it does. No. Oh, so you do have an advantage on the 6309. Well, yeah, everything's just a little bit faster. Not that much more, but yeah. I guess it depends. If 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 you prefer the game to be a bit slower, so your reaction time is better because we're all getting old, it might be an advantage to run it on the slower <laughs> CPU. <laughs> but if you're really good at that kind of stuff and you can get it done a little bit faster, so your timer you got more time left in your timer at the end of the game if you win it, then that might be an advantage. So that's that's it's kind of a toss up. Yeah. 
And and uh, Aaron said, "Yep, I'll be stealing." So make sure you have that video ready for him there, Ken, because he's going to okay. steal it for their show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just saw a flash of the box. Yeah, actually, Jason, can you highlight Jason? There, we'll also show the packaging because even Nick hasn't got a, an actual physical package of it himself yet. Yeah, yeah I haven't is gotten real? my physical copy yet. Jeez. Well, you're in Canada, aren't you? Well, yeah, yeah let me. <laughs> yeah, Canada. Yeah. Canada is slow cool. as well. Yeah, but uh, that's. Uh, that's it. It's in a lovely DVD case, and we can open it up here. And we have. Uh, hey, look! It, we, it's we it's have, the right we, way we, up. It's oh yeah. Let me okay. And for Australia, <laughs> and you can see you can see uh, you can see this guy right here at the bottom. Now now, now he's upside yeah, down. Yeah, he's right. up, there. We go. But um, <laughs> and that familiar the CD right 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 looks like a uh, mugshot. A mug shot, right? Oh, you know, Nick but... just had to get a picture of himself in there, didn't he? Oh, yeah. And uh, we can can't do this. It, Trying to do this backwards. It's, it's, there we go. There, there. Now it's now it's right side up for someone. <laughs> and then, yeah, uh, but it had a face in there before. There's a face, yeah. And then, yeah, uh, if you had turn it, turn it the other way, uh, the, yeah, you had the, the eyes and the nose. Yeah, and yeah. It looks like a happy face. Well, not quite oh, happy. Yeah, a unibrow and, and a tongue. <laughs> a unibrow <laughs> face. Okay. <laughs> well and then it's got then it's got some uh it's got some stuff here on the back too some uh gameplay and Specs. Uh, and we have a we have a it even men mentions curtis on the back how does it, it was an does apology it? sorry about sorry folks but uh <laughs> curtis <laughs> tested this yeah, yeah it basically says curtis endorses this game so don't buy it or something like that no, it says humans are a disease <laughs> this is the cure Hmm. <laughs> the band? Yes, I, I don't know. This, this this is not this is not actual medical advice. And so this is the cover of the new Cure album. I think that's what that means. Ah, right. And I don't know. Would this double as a name a replacement name patch on your Coco? If you want to cut that out, would that? Fit? <laughs> you could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's about the right size too. Oh, oh Aaron mentions uh, we'll be giving that they'll be giving away a box copy of Zero R at Boat Fest as well coming up in June. So. Oh. oh, that's right. He did mention that. I have to get a special ordered one, uh, Nick, where you can sign it, then ship it up to them a couple months ahead. So it's, it's there by the time the show. Oh, it's probably oh, too it's late gotta, now. And, and the back it's is gotta very come shiny. All the way. Yeah, it's got to come <laughs> all the way to Australia first. And then oh, you should take up. that one that you should take that one that you're getting and just sign that one and send that one to West Virginia. It might make it there in time. <laughs> June, June, it should make it. That's three months. Yeah, just yeah. mail the label. Just throw in a bottle, right. put a cork in it. That's how they sign guitars. You yeah, just sign, just sign your name on a piece yeah. of paper, send it. They can put it inside the case. Yeah. yeah. Right in an old that piece of used paper. tissue or something. Yeah. That that would be quicker. Yeah. <laughs> now all we need is the CD-ROM drive for the color computer. There was yeah. one actually back in the late nineties. A SCSI one. Yeah. 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 Cloud Nine sold it. Hmm. Actually, I think is it is that a CD or is it a DVD? No, uh, probably a CD. I, I would think it was just a CD. But okay. I, I think I by the time uh, DVDs came out, I think they're all uh, ATA or PTA, serial ATA. Or, yeah. No, if next game was on a DVD, it would be one track. <laughs> <laughs> DVD. What are you going to do? The, it has the DSK and the uh, the uh, PDF documentation instructions, which. Uh, Maybe maybe I should read those at some point because I fired Why, it up, but I have no idea what I'm doing. It's more fun to play it without reading the instructions. 
Actually, Jason, just a question for those in the U.S. that are ordering it. Uh, how long did it take you to get your physical copy? And we should mention that if you do order it, even the physical copy, Nick will send you the digital copy within 24 to 48 yeah. hours. You don't have to wait for it to come in to play the game. Right. Yeah, the, you, uh, the digital copy. Um, yeah, that usually gets sent out straight after I uh, process the order. But uh, right. yeah, depending on where you are, the CD takes a bit longer. In the U.S., it seems to be about a week. That roughly how long it took for you, Jason? Or? Uh, I think it was le- I think it was less than a week. Uh, let's see. I ordered it on the fifteenth. It looks like here, and then I got it. What was that? That was oh, my days are running together. What about day was? On Wednesday, about five days after order. Yeah, I, I got mine this week, but I'm trying to remember what day that was now. Uh, I'm thinking. I'm thinking that was. Maybe Wednesday. So I'd say about, about a week. Sounds about a week sounds yeah. right. Oh, by the way, Aaron says uh, just show up at Boat Fest, Nick, and he'll put you up. You won't even have to pay for a room. <laughs> <laughs> the two thousand dollar flight that seems to be your yeah. business, but the room, the room just show up. <laughs> and he said he got his very quickly too. So anyway, that being the uh, upcoming in a couple weeks, the uh, Game On Challenge. So. Order now, get it in, get the digital copy almost immediately, and then you'll have several weeks to practice up and see if you can win the game. It's actually one of those games that is solvable. You actually win it. It's not an ad infinitum arcade style game. Okay. Yeah, I guess I got it on the 21st is when I got it. So I ordered it on a Tuesday and had it the following Monday. So just under a week. So that's pretty good. That's not bad, yeah. Your mileage may vary. Ken? Yeah. Uh, do you have the link to the World of Dragon Archive form? You could download the latest copy of Meyer Mare because uh, Alan from HC's 8 Bit Zone is asking for that in the chat. Because um, if you have it, just post it in the uh, the live stream chat. I'll see if it'll allow me to post. Okay. Want to do a series of commercials before the news or jump in the news? I wouldn't do a series. I'd do just one or two. I'd want to keep Mark here too long because uh, he's going to be talking about the headline no, story. So. Okay. And we got a, cu- a couple of. Uh, tell you what, why don't we do this? Why don't we do this brand new promo we have? And then we can go into the news. How's that? For many a year, peace has reigned throughout the realm. In the forest, Nothing but ruins of an ancient fortress remain to fuel the myth of the evil wizard. Tales of your ancestors' quest are met with laughter. Mockery follows your warnings. But you know what awaits. Take it away, L. Curtis Boyle. Okay. 
So the first piece of news, and it's a sad bit, is that uh, John Roach, former Tandy CAO, um, passed away. And that's the reason we have Mark Siegel on, because, of course, they were at Tandy at the same time. And uh, John was very instrumental on getting Tandy into the home computer market and the microcomputer market in general. And uh, we'd seen an interview somebody had done with him, what was it, about a year or two ago, which we had a lot of fun with. <laughs> Some of his Texasisms were definitely showing in the interview, and it was quite amusing. Um, but since Mark has actually like been at uh, some of the presentations that Tandy did when they were announcing new computers and stuff like that at the same time uh, John was there, I, like I, Mark, I believe you'd said that you hadn't really done too much dealing with uh, John directly. Uh, well, there, there are a, f uh, a few instances where uh, we were in the same room at the same time doing some stuff. I think the uh, most interesting one was when R&D uh, called everybody from Radio Shack over to show them they had fixed uh, the um, color on the color computer. And uh, they had uh, very nicely gotten rid of the artifacting mode. And uh, they're showing us uh, all the software uh, running uh, without artifacts. So it was nice black and white. And uh, I kind of chimed up and said, so let me see if I get this right. You want to sell a color computer uh, that runs games in black and white and not color. And the look on Roach's face uh, was probably, uh, you would not have believed it. And on the way back over to the Radio Shack side of the building, he, he commented as, Who's, uh, whose stupid idea was that? Um, yeah, because if I remember correctly, you talked about this when we interviewed you before. Yeah. And I think if I remember the story correctly, they were trying to clean up a signal to get a, a crisper rf signal well no that they, they were they were upset because uh it wasn't supposed to have an artifact mode in it and uh you know as it turns out that's the best color mode for games as far as i'm concerned i mean I, you know uh on the uh color computer one and two and not to mention the fact that we already had uh uh hundreds of games out there that use that mode. Um, yep. So, uh, and, and of course, later on, we, we, we heard that uh, there was a pretty big ruckus over in R&D uh, about whose idea it was to call John Roach over to show him a color computer that doesn't have color. <laughs> Now, I know we've got pictures in Rainbow when you guys, like, well, for example, when the Coco 3 is announced, uh, John was there, Barry Thompson was there, you yep. were there, and a bunch of others. Um, unfortunately, I was trying to find, like, there's a few speeches of John's that are actually on the web that you can see at, at some of these tandy things, like when they announced the Model 100 and the Model 4, I believe, I found one. But I've never seen any of the ones where the, the Coco was announced. I don't know if those were video recorded and maybe our, somebody has them somewhere. I'd love to see them sometime. But what were those events like and what, what was his speeches like during those? Well, he really didn't show up to too many things. He uh, he was more interested in uh, the the overall company than product 
stuff. Uh, you didn't hear from him very often. Uh, gen generally, uh, he he wouldn't even, you couldn't even get a meeting with him. Uh, so if you needed to do something, you had to talk to his assistant, uh, Luann Blaylock, uh, which, as it turns out, uh, she was making all the decisions as far as I could see anyway. So, <laughs> but no, she was very powerful. Uh, in fact, uh, the couple of times uh, I was up in um, uh, the boardroom, where they were discussing certain things, uh, he wouldn't say anything, but she would uh, ask all the questions. It was kind of weird. So he was basically hands off at that point. Like it was he like that even at the beginning. Like I know from reading you know articles and most of the interview that did he was the one who kind of spearheaded Tandy getting into and convincing Charles Tandy to get into like home computers and stuff. So it sounds like he was more involved back then before he became CEO, etc. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, I understand he was an engineer at one point. So, um, uh, you, you know, it, uh, a lot of people don't realize that by the uh, mid '80s, uh, Radio Shack had forty percent of the computer market. Uh, so, it um, that there was just a lot of stuff going on. So he really didn't get involved in too much uh, single product things. He was more interested in the entire overall view of uh, that's why, uh, you know, he was involved in uh, them uh, uh, coming up with the, that big warehouse thing. I forget what it was. Um, like the big computer manufacturing warehouse? No, no, the, the, the big computer warehouse sale, sale place. Uh, Fry's eventually bought it. I forget the name of uh, the... Incredible Universe. Incredible Universe. That was it. Um, so would, would he have been quite involved with Intertan stuff too when you guys were branching out to other countries like Australia? Oh, yeah. He was uh, always involved in all the international stuff. Uh, anything that was... Uh, uh, a global type of thing is what he was, what he kind of matured into and got sort of out of the every day to day running of the business. Yeah, because I mean, this this uh, obituary that was written, and this, this was written up all over the web, like all the tech sites were hitting this because, of course, you know, Tandy Radio Shack, especially in the late 70s, early 80s, like you said, they had 40% of the market and they were the, I think, the best selling computer the model one was the best-selling computer out of the triumvirate that was the first three major home machines which was the commodore pet the trs80 model one which actually wasn't even called that then it was just the trs80 and the apple ii yeah um, and, and you know unfortunately uh when we started coming out with the 1000s uh uh the color computer wound up taking a back seat to it so um yeah we're aware yeah <laughs> you know, uh, it's a little on the unfortunate side of, you know, and they were pushing a lot of them. I mean, you know, they sold the uh, first uh, million uh, 1,000s in three months. So right. it took the color computer a slight bit longer than that. Yeah. 
I know it mentions here though, like I'm just uh, for those who are listening to the podcast as opposed to seeing it, we're just reading a little bit of the obituary that was published on I think the Verge. Um, or this is Business Insider in this case. I would mentioned that uh, he had joined Tandy in 1967, rose to the ranks, and helped turn into a personal computer behemoth in the late 1970s. And at the age of 42, he was named as Tandy's president. Was he the one that immediately succeeded Charles Tandy? I'm trying to remember if there's somebody else in between. Uh, not that I know of. I, I, I think he was the next in line. Yeah, and then later became the CEO uh, from 83 to 98. Um, now, what were the differing roles in Tandy between a, a CEO versus a president? Uh, the CEO basically uh, is in charge of everything, and the president is basically in charge of one division. Okay. So he would have been president uh, of uh, Tandy, um, which you could say is everything, but it's not. There was a whole lot of other uh pieces of it like candy wire and cable and uh, candy leather candy company leather and yeah all that that was not included and uh when he became ceo that was all included which kind of explains why we've been hands-off because then you know radio shack and all of its stores is just one part of the empire not yeah he was concentrating before yeah because i think we still have a tandy leather company up here in saskatoon no uh, they're they're, they're still around uh, no, no, no radio shacks though up here. <laughs> yeah, I don't know who owns them these days. Right, it just says Tandy. Yeah, and it says here he joined Tandy. I remember that he talked about this in his interview as a data processing manager. So he was hired to do computer stuff. You know, back yeah. in the late '60s, uh, kind of you know computerizing. So this the, is, the this company. was a TCU grad. So this is kind of a local boy does good story because TCU is right there. Yeah. yeah, and he actually uh, donated a lot of money to TCU because I, I remember uh, uh, one of the buildings, I, you know, I took some piano lessons at TCU and it was in a uh, uh, John Roach building. Oh, the building's actually named after him. Yeah. Yeah, he earned a physics and math degrees at TCU and later added a master's degree in business administration. And it was during his graduate school time at TCU he first learned of uh, computer programming. I don't, I doubt he did much programming when he got older, but. And TCU put up a nice uh, Twitter uh, post uh, about him and mentioning the fact that uh, he was very generous with him. So, yeah, I don't think he ever did any programming, but. Yeah, maybe, maybe in the 60s, like when he was first hired and he was trying to, you know, computerize some of the, you know, the background stuff. In the yeah, it sounds like it was in the data processing back end is where he got hired. Um, usually they don't name buildings after you unless you contribute a significant contribution. Yeah, well, uh, I, I think he wound up quite wealthy, so. He probably did. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, it says he was also an elected chairman of uh, TCU's Board of Trustees in 1990 and led the 1990s project initiative to help set the school's agenda for the next 10 years. And he helped hire the uh, TCU chancellor in 1998. So he's very heavily involved with the, with the university, yeah. it looks like. Uh, I noticed John Shirley's names on this uh, thing. that he, he When I went to work for uh, Tandy, John Shirley was the... Um, Vice President of uh, Computer Marketing at Radio Shack. 
uh, he eventually uh, left there and went to work for Microsoft. Yeah, in fact, I've watched this video. This, I, if this is the same one I remember seeing, both of them were kind of involved with the announcement of the, the Model 100 and the uh, Model 4. Now, the Model 4, they just kind of covered briefly and said you basically can upgrade to Model 3. But the Model 100, they were really keen on how the whole thing worked with the integrated ROM and your, yeah. your apps and stuff are saved automatically, or not automatically, but they're saved. And you can just bring them up by app or by you know the data file that's related to an app. Like it had a lot of early on, you know, ease of use type things built into it that no other machine really had that because this is like almost a decade before windows got good so well on, on top of that uh there really wasn't any computer you could uh basically that uh kept all its um data in it alive while it was turned off so w without being a hard drive or something and Exxon Battery Life was the first real popular portable. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's also the first uh, computer to have uh, a barcode reader. Yeah. I remember the, the Model 100 magazines actually had it so you could scan and program listings instead of typing them with the barcode yeah. reader, which was sandy. I remember uh, uh, during that project, we had HP come in uh, to uh, give us some instruction on uh how barcodes actually worked uh which was kind of interesting yeah he was he was definitely a pioneer in the industry um helped take tandy to, to great heights um getting them involved with computers first of all in the 60s when he joined in data processing and then actually helping spearhead the you know going after the microcomputer market when it was just starting literally so they're like right in the ground floor in 77. Um, even though we had trouble, you know, convincing Charles Tandy, you know, would this even be successful enough? Well, you can make enough for one for every store. So if the whole thing falls through the floor there, we can at least have a computer for inventory or something. And then of course they sold like crazy. So. Anyway, I think a lot of us owe some debt to him because I mean, helping spare the whole microcomputer home computer revolution period, you know, across the entire industry makes him vitally important and of course uh you know he was involved especially in the early coco one days with the coco which was tandy's best-selling computer line up until the tandy 1000 yeah i mean just to give people some perspective uh in 1977 uh i lived in la and uh there was one computer store in los angeles uh there were a lot of radio shacks so had Radio Shack not gotten into the computer business, it would have been a long time before it had developed from stuff like from people like Apple and Commodore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was the biggest uh, selling point of the Radio Shack is that it was like a, not even countrywide, it was international. Um, but you had stores everywhere, all over the place so that you could pick up the exact same computer and you didn't have to try to find some private dealer that was, you know, had a deal with Apple or deal with Commodore or whatever, so. It definitely popularized home computers a lot faster than I think, like you said, it, the, the industry would have still happened, but it would have probably been a couple of years delayed getting as big as fast as it did if it hadn't been for Tandy Radio Shack. It, and uh, it, it would have been actually a lot longer because, you know, a lot of people would not have uh, been willing to risk shelf space on a thousand dollar product. 
Yeah. Actually, we got a comment from Steve Bjork. So uh, hi, Steve. I haven't seen you in a while in the in the chat. So John and I had a great relationship. It came to my aid many times when somebody in Tandy was trying to take advantage of me. He was a straight shooter and, and wanted to keep the outside vendors happy. So he was all about that, you know, relationship with developers and stuff too, which is it's good to hear. As well as customers and like like when you're dealing with him, was he uh as, as Steve said, like a straight shooter, like he would call things out if, if they looked like they were going bad. It sounds like it from the uh, the black and white versus color thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, as I say, he, he, he really tried to stay away from stuff, but uh, he was pretty straightforward. Um, the, the other big time we de I dealt with him was uh, when the deluxe color computer was being canceled. And uh, there was kind of, he he actually wanted to get the thing out there, but uh, Bernie Appel said he wasn't willing to take the risk. Uh, he knew he could sell every one of the Coco twos, but he wasn't sure he could sell all the deluxes. I would have to say John probably would have been right on that one rather than Bernie, but <laughs> uh, yeah, but you know. Uh, at that point, uh, Bernie Appel was president and he was CEO and, you know, you don't go against your president if, uh, yeah. he, you know, if, if there's somebody to blame and something happens, then Rhodes wasn't going to take the blame for it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a lot of what ifs when you go through the history of Tanya or any, any company for that matter, you know, certain decisions have been made. How would things turn out differently? So. We speculate about that all the time here. <laughs> That's true. Anyway, it's a, it's a sad passing. I did want to have Mark come on because I know Mark has actually dealt with them in person a few times, been at events um, where they've you know presented new computers together and stuff. And I don't think anybody else in the panel has ever met him. So I wanted to get some of the, the personal stories and, and personal opinions and, and thoughts on him. And uh, I wasn't aware until I read the obituary and stuff here of how involved he was with his local college and stuff too. So that that's good to know. He was just seemed to be a nice guy all the way around. Uh, generous with his time, generous with, with money for his alma mater, et cetera. So thanks. Thanks, Mark, for popping yeah. on. And thanks hey. to Steve for uh, piping in a little bit in the chat too. Sorry, go ahead, Mark. Uh, I, I was just going to say he was a person with a vision. That's what the world needs is more people with visions. Totally agree. So you can hang around a little longer yeah. if you want to, Mark, as we go through the other stories, but don't feel obliged to stay. But thanks for coming on for this. Okay, and now a second tech luminary passed away the, recently, too. And that is Stephen Willite, the creator of GIF, or GIF as I call it. <clears throat> um, that, that's been a, a controversy. Now, when the original 1987 specs uh, for GIF were created, by Stephen, um, and this was created for CompuServe. It was meant to be a successor to RLE, which was a black and white run length encoded compress uh, run length encoded compression routine uh, that was built into a lot of terminal programs back in the day, including the Videotex or Vidtex, I should say, it was the name of the CompuServe one for the Coco. There was versions for PCs and other machines too, and you basically look like P mode one or P mode four style graphics. In fact, it, the P mode four style was actually a built-in spec. That the IBM PC had to cut the sides off because their screen was wider, but it followed the Coco spec, 256 by 192. And then people discovered artifacting colors. And I remember the PC actually made translators and stuff to artifact, fake artifacting colors like the emulators have done 
to kind of duplicate the cocoa screen became quite popular. But it was limited to four artifact colors or fixed colors, et cetera. So what Stephen came up with was a whole GIF format where you have these headers and blocks where we define the local palette. You could define rectangular shapes that'd be in different parts of the screen. So if you wanted to draw a really detailed high-res screen, but you wanted to leave some stuff open for you know, text or something else that's going to appear, you just want graphics in certain spots, you didn't have to render an entire screen, which other formats up to this point usually did. You could actually say, I want a little rectangle with the logo up in the upper left corner. And I want another logo on the lower right and maybe a little menu, graphical menu or something somewhere in the middle and everything else is wide open. It doesn't have to compress the entire screen. It would just compress these little chunks and they could have local palettes and all kinds of stuff. So it was quite forward thinking for 87. Um, it supported like 24 bit color right off the bat. As far as your palette's concerned, up to 256 colors per image, and they could be different between the different images on the screen. So it was pretty advanced for its time. Um, and then some people kind of figured out using that where you have these different defined blocks, you could you know, do animation style things. And then you could get the 89 version of GIF added some more support for that. Though they specifically said in the docs, it's not designed for animation, though you can do limited animation with it. And then, of course, the animated GIF is what everybody's used to seeing now. I mean, if you were back in, you know, on the web, AOL online type stuff or the early days of the web in the 90s, there was tons of animated GIFs all over the place. And they're still used for memes and stuff even today. And uh, that was actually a combination of what Steven had created and the original spec and then Netscape adding an extension header that would basically have timing. Like, do you want this repeating animation to keep repeating forever? Or do you want it to go through once and stop? How many... Uh, delays of a hundredth of a second you want between the frames and then it became full animated and that's when you started getting you know the men at work gifs on the bottom like my web page is under construction type thing so i guess we could curse them for that part but it was a really good spec well well thought out well ahead of time uh ahead of its time i should say and uh the only real problem that gif had is that a little bit later it ended up getting uh in legal trouble because of the compression routine he was using, like not not all the GIF header stuff that actually defined a lot of these things, but the compression routine was Lempel Zev Welsh, I think. And uh, that was actually something that a university owned the rights to. So all of a sudden there was a bit of a controversy where people that were actually making GIF, or just sorry, GIF encoders had to pay a licensing fee in order to do that. And I mean, a lot of the minor computers like the Cocoa and stuff, if we are a few programs that we had to create GIFs, I don't think anybody here paid for the licensing fee. And they didn't really go after the small time people, but the big time things like Adobe and stuff, they definitely went after licensing fees. That patent finally expired around 94, I think. So basically there's no such thing now. It's, it's, it's legally free, but that did slow it down a little bit. And it was the reason that PNG format was created was to get around these, uh, licensing deals and having to pay for it so but uh, gif's still around it's still used on animated stuff all over the place um so it's 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 a quite quite a popular format even this day it was something that the coco was one of the early machines to get a decoder to actually see these pictures because the spec came out in 87 the first spec and the first uh, gif viewers were actually out the same year mike dezidezik i hope it's his right name right uh because some of the a lot of the original uh gif programs and other platforms like the pc were written in C, he actually just took the C code from there and converted it to run on the Kogel 3. And within six months, we had our own GIF viewer. We were one of the earliest 8-bits to actually have it. And uh, I think uh, Chris Babcock is the one who did the first versions for Disk Basic, I think a year later. I think his first one came out in 88, maybe 89, I can't remember. And now we've got a ton of them. There's like seven or eight of them on OS 9. There's at least four or five I can think of on the Kogel. There's even a Kogel 1 and 2 GIF viewer, GIF viewer, I'm going to keep saying that, um, 
that you can do. I know with a delivery of limited colors, it, it doesn't look as good, obviously, but as the Cocoa 3 versions, but there is one available if you want to actually you know, decode a GIF on a Cocoa 1 and 264K. So um, the one sad, other sad thing about this is that uh, I mean, we're trying to get out of the pandemic here, and it turns out that what he passed away from was COVID. So it's uh, it's not quite out of here yet. Now, I don't know about his vaccination status or anything like that. I don't really want to get into that, but uh, just, you know, stay safe, people. That's all I can say. Right. Well, so. I mean, old people die from the flu. It's not because yeah. the flu is especially bad. It's because they're old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that very well could be here. He did have had he did have a stroke earlier, too, uh, in the 90s, I think it was. And I should mention, he was working for CompuServe when he did this, and he stayed there for a while. And then he got hired on as the chief architect at America Online, ironically enough. And, uh, and then he had a stroke, and that's when he retired. And then he was just kind of living in retirement for, I think it was the late 90s is when he had a stroke. So anyway, another luminary in the industry with you know stuff that's still used today. So now back on to like lesser depressing things. The first up is uh, Brendan Donahue, the creator of the Coca VGA. Um, for those not familiar, it's an upgrade for the Cocoa 1 and 2 and the Dragon that will give you a much expanded palette, 64 by 32 text mode, true lowercase, redefinable character sets, and a whole bunch of other things. But most of that stuff is required to machine language programming because of the way you have to do it. You have to set up a 512-byte frame buffer, I think he calls it, or something similar to that, that you have to put in settings. You have to catch it on the vSync, and, and then basically the Cocoa VGA interpreted as you want to change some settings. So it's not easily accessible from basic until now. So what he's been working on lately is he's been doing some extensions to basic and I'll just zoom up the screen a little bit here so you can kind of see it maybe. That's a video, but I'll just show that here. Um, so he's added this V palette command and this one, you set the RGB values directly. Um, so basically I think the original version of the VJ had less colors available and the higher, the later versions have a lot more. So I think it's like 16 bit color now you can pick from. Uh, so in this case here, you can actually just run it through a basic command. This little extension to basic you load. Now you can access the actual palette commands. And I think he's planning on expanding it to some of the other features in the, in the chip as well, or in the board. But this means you don't have to be a machine language programmer to access all this extra stuff. And you don't, you can just run it in a basic program. You just load in this little preloader, it adds a few commands to basic, and then you can actually start controlling it yourself. So if you want to make like a palette animated Cocoa 1 and 2 game, where you're cycling through colors to make like rocket flames and stuff move, without having to physically redraw all the time so it's a lot faster, that's here now. So I will, I won't play this particular video here with gets into the details, but he did have a smaller length video that actually shows it running through some cycling and stuff here. So I'll just, oops, I'll play through this. You can kind of see what it does here uh, with his commentary. There's a bit of a fun addendum to my previous video. So here I've created a for loop that walks from min to max um, uh, range of each of the R, G, and B values. And you'll notice it's using I in all of the red, green, and blue positions. That means since they're all equal, it's going to appear gray. And so I'm doing, uh, I'm doing an increasing uh, uh, gray brightness, goes from black to white um, on slot one, which is this green background. And I'm doing and a decreasing the opposite direction, uh, um, gray that goes from white to black on slot zero, which is the text background. So I iterate over that, and then I just do it all over again. 
So you can see that the background is increasing in brightness until it reaches max and then starts over. And the text, on the other hand, is going the opposite direction. It's starting out light and getting darker and darker and darker until it resets. There's a bit of a... So that, that's, that's cool that he's actually adding the basic functionality. Cause that's like, that's one thing that's been kind of limiting on it is that basically you had to be a bit of a machine language programmer to be able to use a lot of the advanced features in the Coco VJ. I mean, he has some set of programs you can run so you can manually set the palette, um, you know, manually reload characters, et cetera. But if you can get this interface directly into basic, like he did with the V palette command here, where you don't have to have all these other programs you have to run first and then you have to figure out how they work in order to change some of the settings in those programs so this will just you know, build it right into your own basic program so i think this will help a lot of basic developers start using the advanced features of the coco vga next up uh, keith otherwise known as chibia kumis who has done a whole bunch of tutorial series on programming various 8 and 16-bit micros basically for game stuff he's doing a lot of stuff on reading joysticks and keyboards and doing graphics and sound etc so a while ago, he reintroduced uh, Learn Multiform Assembly Language Programming book, which covered the uh, Z slash Z80, 65026, 8000, 8086, and ARM chips. And he's just come out with the second volume, which actually covers some other CPUs, and one of them is the 6809. And ironically enough, the PDP-11 is another one of the ones in there too, which is what the 6809's instruction set's based on. A lot of the uh, indexing modes, et cetera, uh, are all based on, on, on the PDP Assembly uh, Language spec. So this also covers the ARM thumb, the 65AD116, which is a 16-bit version of the 65, no, wait, no, that's 68. Never mind. 65816, PDP-11, and RISC-V, which is not one I'm familiar with. Um, but he actually has some samples, like he's done stuff on the Dragon, he's done stuff on the Coco 1 and 2, he's done stuff on the Coco 3. He does cover bits and pieces of that in here, but it's more meant as a general assembly language thing. And he's got this video here goes a little bit into the book itself and shows you some of the pieces. Like he's got stuff where it compares all the different CPUs do, do the same things, how the different instruction sets for different CPUs, their equivalent instruction between. So if you want to do cross-platform programming yourself, it kind of gives you some aid on, you know, this instruction on a 6809 would be this on a 65816 or something. Um, but this this video here, he kind of goes into more into the publishing side. He was trying to figure out, like, you know, publishing a book. He talks about the original one. He wasn't sure if it would sell as a physical book, so he made it a digital download. Uh, he personally finds using a physical book better for reference when you're trying to reference stuff constantly on your desk. And I, I'm a bit of a mixed bag in that myself. Sometimes it's better to have a PDF I can search. But there's other times where just having something open, I can quickly look up, you know, in an index and something is actually more advantageous for me. So... I don't know how you guys feel about that, but he's selling it on both both methods as always. Uh, There's a new sequel book that we definitely like. He prefers the physical version of the book. He says it's easier for him to work with. So, But for those of you interested in, in multi-platform programming, if you want to program, say, a Spectrum and a Tier City Model 1 and a Coco and a C64, et cetera, et cetera, uh, this, this, both sets of these books here, because it kind of covers the same stuff just between different CPUs, it would actually be very, very handy for being able to translate between any of these platforms. Uh, RISC-V is a pretty interesting instruction set. Uh, it's an open source RISC architecture. Uh, and I think you'll be seeing a lot of the big guys going after it shortly. Okay, that's cool. I, I didn't know too much about that. I'm a PDP I'm familiar with. 
as is Rick Adams, since we both programmed on them before. Um, I got a note here from uh, Alan at 8-Bit Zone saying video volume is too low. So um, when I start playing these other videos, let me know if they're still too low here and I can see if I can boost them up a bit. Sometimes it's just the recording of you know how it was originally recorded and I can't do too much about it, but some of these I can probably bump. Next up, Robert Sieg, who has been rather famous for doing a ton of stuff on the MC10. Um, we covered some of his uh, reprogrammable font and sprite tiles and stuff here. Has actually been doing a lot of stuff with the Coco 3 the last couple of weeks using composite video to do artifact colors to get more than 16 colors on the screen. So he's actually uploaded his first disc image based on all this stuff. You can download on the Facebook Coco group called new01.disc. And he's still fiddling with it. And we've had a few people do this kind of thing. We've had uh, Sockmasters on one in RGB that is page flipping and you know timing to change a palette once every scan line and all kinds of stuff. Um, Sockmaster did a later one here, I think about a year ago, he's fiddling with some of the composite where he's using the 640 mode and actually just defining grays. But if you place the odd even pixels and batches of four, you can get a whole bunch of extra colors. So Robert's algorithm's a bit different, but it's kind of doing the same effect. And, uh, you know, he's here, he's kind of fiddling. And he said, this isn't quite working right yet. He's still working on it type thing. So it's been a work in progress and he's had updates multiple times this week going through it. Um, so it's very interesting to see what he's doing. And then as a kind of a follow-up, Robert Galt has also been fiddling with that kind of stuff too. And here he's got one where he's uh, doing some page flipping, but not going, you know, to the extent that uh, Sockmaster did on his high color program, which is RGB only, I should mention, uh, doing the same types of tricks, but with two page flips. And, um, you know, you'll get a little bit of flicker here, but you can get some pretty, pretty decent looking results there too. Like you can see a lot of greens here that it would be above and beyond what normally you would get. So it's interesting to see this because uh, it's it's getting harder and harder to get uh, composite-based monitors and stuff now that will actually handle the signals properly with proper artifacting. And uh, I know a lot of the game developers, I know, Nick, you're one of them, uh, much prefer RGB because you get much more predictable, firm colors, and you can do colors right next to each other that you can still see what they are, where in composite, they tend to blur together, and certain colors just become a smudgy mess. And uh, Nick, I remember, I think you mentioned there was a certain contrast between colors on zero hour if you're in composite mode that makes it quite hard to read the text. I can't remember which color combo it was. Yeah, I think it was a red on a blue or something, which was fine on RGB, but it was a complete slur under composite. Yeah. So there's definitely two separate camps here, kind of. There's the ones that want the RGB because you get the crisp and clean, fully controllable color, good contrast between pixels. Personally, my favorite because it makes 80 tech column text much more readable, or even 106 column for that matter. Um, but if you have a, an old TV that can handle this or a monitor that can handle composite pro colors properly from the Cocoa signal, you can get more than 16 colors on the screen pretty easily. And there's R Robert Sieg actually goes through some pixel patterns that he's figured out for doing this in, in batches of four we can get some pretty predictable colors. So it'd be good for an adventure style game, I think. I don't think you're trying to do an arcade game. Trying to shift stuff around would just be a complete mess. Though who yeah. knows, somebody will try it. But for a fixed game, like a, a graphical adventure game, I think you could do some pretty interesting stuff with this. So I'm interested to see where Robert, the two, two Roberts go with this. Next up, Color Computer Programming Channel on YouTube. He's the one who does uh, Coco 1 and 2. He's been doing a lot of little graphic stuff in basic. Uh, we showed a few weeks ago he was doing a graphical adventure game where you'd walk, you know, to a door and then you click something to, you know, open the door, open the chest or whatever type thing. Uh, this one's a little bit more different on the technical side of things. He's using XROAR and he explains how to set up XROAR to output uh, text from an L list command 
or from print number negative two, which is to normally redirect to the serial port printer, uh, how to set up XOR to capture that stuff into a text file. So you can actually do those commands within basic and actually dump it out to a text file that you can later edit on your PC. So it kind of goes through how to set that up and, and, and then also some examples of actually using, I won't play the video here, it's 15 minutes long, but uh, for those of you that want some way to generate the output, the text output from the uh, XWare emulator, while you're in the emulator to come out in the text file, you can see on the PC or Mac or whatever you're hosting it on. Uh, it's a pretty good little tutorial video on that. Uh, next up, this is a, a channel I've not heard of before called the Alderson Video Media Channel. And basically, it's just a quick little video uh, basically explaining that uh, the Coco is kind of what got him into programming in the first place. And he's kind of getting back to it now. And it sounds like there's a hint in the video that he's planning on, and on doing some further videos on the Coco uh, in the future. So this is one of those YouTube short things, so it keeps repeating itself. So I'll try to stop it after it goes to the first one here. This is the Tandy Radio Shack Coco 3. I started working with it in many Tandy computers back in the 80s. I started my career that way. I worked with everything all the way up to the Raspberry Pi and PCs and Visual Studio and did a lot of coding through my life. I'm just starting a new YouTube channel as I have retired. I hope you view. Thank you. So obviously he's got the Cocoa Pie too, which is cool. Um, no, I don't know from that name, Alderson Video Media. Does anybody know if, if, if somebody on our Discord, perhaps, or in the Facebook group, is this person? Because if he's aware of the Cocoa Pie, he's obviously aware of what the, what's going on in the community nowadays. But I'd love to have him on the show sometime to maybe talk about how he got his career started. Nobody knows of him so far? Okay. Well, if he's listening to this, uh, reach, out, reach out to us either on Discord. You can hit me up at curtisboyle at sasktail.net. Love to have you on the show. And look forward to future videos. Hey, next up after that, Mike Rayburn. Uh, we mentioned him a while ago. He's, he's the one who's doing a PS2 mouse adapter as well as a joystick adapter in one single cartridge and a little switch to go between the two modes. So he's uh, put up a couple uh, demo videos and he's also mentioned now that he's expecting, he's basically in the debugging phase at this point. He's fixed up a lot of bugs already. Uh, he's expecting to go through probably another couple of weeks of fully trying it with a whole range of software. And then he plans to sell the ones that he's pre-manufacturing with boards. And then he's also be publishing publicly the actual schematics and everything else. That, what are they called? Gerber files? Is that the right term? Uh, yes. And stuff here to actually manufacture them on your own. I'm hoping somebody can pick up the torch and actually make them because there's quite a few people in the community like myself that just don't have the skill to try to make something on their own or the equipment for that matter. Um, or the hair. Simple. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so it sounds like it's it's pretty close. This particular video here is the second of two videos he did. The other one he, he demonstrated some joystick stuff. This is demonstrating the mouse, and at the end of it, you know, the joystick stuff as well. But he's using ColorMax Deluxe with the high res adapter from Tandy, so he's showing that it works with the high res adapter as well. And I will play the video and let him explain the rest of that on his own. So, just another quick little update on the Coco PS2. The It is fully compatible with the Tandy uh, high-res adapter. Uh, I've got Color Max pulled up here, and as you can see, the mouse moves nice and smooth. Uh, the only issue that I found is if you switch it over to the Joy, it's a little jerky. So 
This is due to the lower resolution of the analog to digital converters that I'm using in this. Uh, I may come out with a Rev 2 version and include a higher res uh, analog to digital converter in it. Not sure how much you know that's really needed because I mean if you're wanting to do precision work you really need a mouse anyway. You know I couldn't imagine trying to do much with a joy. Uh, and like I said with the really cheap availability of PS2 mice and I'm sure everybody has a dozen of them if they're into classic computers so definitely not a high priority but yeah just wanted to show that it is capable of working with the high-res interface and uh, let me know what you guys think so it looks like it's it's progressing well and he's it said in the other video he mentioned that he's expecting to actually have them on sale the, the few he's got board for i think he ordered 10 uh sale in the next couple of weeks so probably about mid-april and uh, if somebody else can pick up the the torch and, and arrange with him for maybe manufacturing, that'd be a pretty pretty cool thing to have. The fact that it, it does the PS2 mouse and the joystick at the same time is kind of cool too. So you can use that. I think it's the nine pin. Is that the standard PC? I can't remember now. Uh, oh, the game that. port thing. Yeah, I think it's a game port. I, I can't remember now because I haven't watched his original video in a while. Too much too much news under the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> So we'll, we'll follow up as soon as he announces that he has them for sale. We'll definitely announce it on the show here. But uh, I would like to see you know some reviews of it when you if anybody here gets some of them, just to see how it works. Next up, and this this hopefully is going to be a sneak preview. Um, if you remember a few months ago, we had a Japanese set of developers that were making across platform games for uh, like thirty different systems. Like a lot of the Japanese ones, like PC six thousand ones, etc. Um, and then they would convert them to others like Dragons and, and BBC Micros and Spectrums and the Coco and the MC10. So Jim Gary posted here, uh, and the, the website's called Inufuto, I'm pronouncing that right, that they've got a new game that they just started releasing this week called Ascend, which kind of looks like a Panic-style game. I'm not sure if that's how it plays or not. But it's been just released originally earlier in the week and it's already up to 11 platforms now because it's japanese site it's all japanese platforms so far but the modus operandi so far has been that they'll bring out the japanese ones first then they start converting it to the european and the north american platform so hopefully this game is another new machine language game that'll be coming out for the mc10 and also for the cocos um so i'll keep an eye on that and once i if it does get announced i will definitely bring it up on the show so that people can go grab it down i think we've done what is it, about half a dozen or seven or eight maybe that we've already gone through before. So I remember Jim Gary mentioning that they doubled the number of machine language programs for the MC10 overnight pretty well when we found the originals, but we'll definitely keep an eye on that. And the last game on one for this week, Darren Autry uh, is working on an invaders style game in semi-graphics four for the MC10, which he wrote in basic, uh, but then run it through the uh, compiler that Greg Dion has done for the uh, 6803 and the MC10. And they also did a little bit of tweaking with uh, TASM 6801, which I think is an assembler for it. So this is just a brief little demo video here uh, showing the sound and stuff. Now it's, it is compiled basic, so it's not full machine language, but it still runs a pretty decent clip.
Anyway, you get the idea. So basically, this is him experimenting with the uh, the compiler and the assembler. He's not sure if this is going to become a full-fledged game. For him, it's more just learning how everything works. I think he should finish it because it looks pretty decent. Um, but it shows that the compiler can definitely do some pretty decent style games. And I think, I can't remember if he said the assembler stuff, I think he's using for sound. So you can do a little bit more varied sound than standard sound command does because they don't have a play command on the MC10's basic. But uh, I don't know, it looks, it looks pretty good. It should run in 4K too, which is nice. So you don't even need the expansion RAM packs for this. And it, it's, it's cool that there's still a lot of MC10 development going on, including the, the previous story with the uh, Japanese developers who have released like half a dozen MC10 machine language ported games that uh, looks like there might be another one coming out. So lots of stuff happening in MC10 world too. That's the end of the regular news. Um, if you want, I can go straight into the regular or we can have a commercial break first. It's up to you, Mark. Um, yeah, we might as well do the, the commercial break. We got to run our uh, usual first group. Yeah. All right. Let's see, we did that one and... Hi Retro Tech Heads, Data Soup here. You're watching Coco Talk, the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer and proudly Patreon sponsored by RetroTechTime.com. Failure. Oh, my stream deck just went bonkers on me. Hi, Retro Tech Heads. Data Soup here. You're watching Coco Talk the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer and proudly Patreon sponsored by RetroTechTime.com. Coco Talk would like to thank the patrons who sponsor our program, so our heartfelt gratitude goes out to Alan Huffman, Alan Murphy, Blair Ledoux, Bolton Aaron, Brendan Donahue, Brian Weasler, Brian Walsh, Karen Hanscom, D. Bruce Moore, Daddy Burrito, Daniel Williams, Diego, Eric Canales, Glenn Hewlett, Graham Vebke, Grant Leedy, Henry Strickland, Jason Downs, Jay Style, Ken Reichert, Malfunct, Michael Pitsley, Mike Rayburn, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, Paul Thayer, Retro Tech Time, Rick Eulin, Rob Inman, Rocky Hill, Stephen Wagner, Steve Batson, Steve Rasmussen, Terry Steen, Terry Steggy, The Backyard Shed Gang, Tim Thayer, Tom C., Tom Gunderson, Tom Heron, Tom S., Tony C., and William Athing. Thank you ever so much, patrons. Eddie Zervinsky from beautiful Quebec City. Vous écoutez Coco Talk. 
As you're enjoying Coco Talk, we also want to remind you about the Coco Discord server. This is a place where people come to connect, to ask questions, to provide answers, to share information, and to socialize. So when you're done, why don't you head on over to the Coco Discord server and we'll continue the conversation there. The easy to remember link is discord.cocotalk.live. See you on Discord. Coco123 is the Glenside Color Computer Club community newsletter that's been in publication since 1985. While the Rainbow Magazine may be gone, it doesn't mean you still can't have a cool Coco periodical. Head on over to the Glenside Color Computer website at glensideccc.com and then click on the Documents link to view all the past issues of the Coco123 newsletter. Not only can you read all of the past and present issues, we'd also love to hear some submissions from you. So if you'd like to send an article, a column, something to talk about, maybe even a program listing, send an email to glensideccc at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. The Coco World Map is a cool community resource where you can view coconuts from around the world. Head on over to map.cocotalk.live and see where your fellow coconutians happen to be living on the planet Earth. If you would like to submit yourself to be on the Coco Map, send an email to cocotalk at cocotalk.live and we look forward to seeing you on the Coco Map. Hey guys, it's Stevie Stroh, and if you've been watching Coco Talk for a while, hopefully you understand that everyone is welcome to join this show. So you don't need an impressive resume to get on. You just need to enjoy the Coco and be willing to talk about it. There is no wrong way to Coco. There is no wrong way to be a fan of the Coco. There's no wrong way to be on Coco Talk. You just have to want to talk Coco. So if you would like to join us, then reach out to us on our Discord server, which is discord.cocotalk.live, or send an email to cocotalk at cocotalk.live, and let's get you on the show, and let's talk about the Coco. Hi, I'm Tim, and you're watching Coco Talk Live. And I'm playing Daggereth online like that idiot from the book. Uh, can you can you dial back on the condescension there as you respond there? It's time for everyone's favorite segment. Who's new to Discord this week? Gary N. Hello, my name is Gary, and I have been a part of the Coco community since 2018 when I visited the Coco Fest in Lombard, Illinois. I recall Steve Bjork's talk on the Coco versus other systems at the time. I look forward to gaming on the Coco with the community. Chris O. Chris here, from Arlington, Virginia. I'm a Coco 1 enthusiast and collector as it was my childhood computer back in grade school. I'm familiar with many of the folks on this channel. Many are part of the TRS-80 Facebook group that I also am part of. It's great to be here and I look forward to meeting many of you. The previous bios were edited for time's sake. Thanks to, Melly, Boysontek, Paul Fiscarelli, Eric Canales, Terry Stagey, and the Talk patrons for boosting the server. Please consider joining Discord and visiting the welcome section to read these bios in full and see what the community has to offer. At discord.cocotalk.live
And we're back. However, one one announcement I do need to make uh, on the uh, new to Discord, um, Glenside Computer Club, uh, or Glenside Color Computer Club, is now a uh, uh, sponsoring uh, uh, Discord. I believe they've also boosted the server. Oh, cool. So uh, that uh, did make it into uh, this week's new to Discord, but uh, that needed to be mentioned. So, game on news. Okay, it's all yours, Curtis. Okay, okay. <clears throat> so first up, uh, Ken can talk about this since it's one of his videos. Okay. Um, yeah, so last week on my Twitch channel, I Sunday night, I believe, I played Zero Hour. And I had uh, a few of the people, like Nick, in the audience telling me what I was doing wrong. So yeah, the Commonwealth <laughs> was quite well represented there because there was me and Nick and Commonwealth Nations. Yeah. And uh, how many hours did you play Zero Hour? Uh, well, I... <laughs> an hour. <laughs> about a, it was close to an hour and a half that I played it. So I practiced for about an hour. And then this was my final game where I actually didn't do nearly as bad. <laughs> kind of figured out what I was doing. I hadn't read the instructions or anything. So I hear that's not important uh, anyway. Yeah. Who needs instructions? Anyway, so oh, yeah. you're, sh you're showing off your deluxe joystick too. Yeah. So the, this is my, uh, this is just taken directly from my Twitch stream. So, yeah. And you want to plug your Twitch stream again because you actually got multiple days that you're doing certain things on there and some are. Okay. Yeah. It, so. so I'm playing on uh, Sunday nights, Monday nights, and Tuesday nights on Twitch. Uh, Twitch channel is Canadian Retro Things, all one word. Same as my YouTube channel. So, yeah. Um, I have a schedule posted up on my homepage there. So if anybody wants to drop by and talk old computers, I'm always up for that. And I'm usually playing the Game On Challenge of the Week on Sundays, plus some other games. Uh, Mondays, I'm attempting to work my way through Gates of Delirium. And Tuesdays, I'm just playing some random retro games on different systems. Yep, I've actually finally managed to catch you live on there once now, so I'll, I'll try catching you a bit more. Yeah, uh, I also want to mention... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just saying that I've moved my uh, Monday and Tuesday streams to the evening because mornings were a bit too hectic for me. Yeah. I want to mention there was a mention in the chat here from Amy. We just hit two to the power of eight subs. Powers of two is where we're celebrating milestones. Y'all are a huge part. Thank you. So congratulations to them. We both hit the you know, wrapping the 8-bit here roughly at the same time, which is kind of cool, because uh, next week's going to be our first 16-bit episode. Unless we have a 12-bit system. <laughs> <laughs> so next up, uh, the official YouTube release of episode 30 of the Coco Show, featuring Boat and Aaron, was The Amazing World of Malcolm Mortar, which is actually uh, kind of a sleeper hit for me. And uh, I'm trying to remember, Mark, you had some input on the design of this one, too, didn't you? Yeah, it was my original idea. Uh, but 
uh, it, it matured a little bit, and I, you know, uh, Greg and I probably shared the design on it. Yeah, and there's some testing, I think, by Mark Easter or something. Yeah, he, he worked on the, the maze algorithm. And just uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the Amigos show, I'll just play a little bit of the intro here, which will kind of give you the idea of how, how the show goes. It's got a definite you know, humor in it. Brick me up, Big Daddy. It's the amazing world of Malcolm Mortar on the Coco Show. Now, one of my favorite parts is that the, the both thinks the name's kind of silly because uh, it's the amazing world of Malcolm Mortar, but you're not Malcolm Mortar. That's your dire enemy that's trying to kill you. You're actually B. Rick Brick. <laughs> so, anyway, it's, it's, it's a standard Amigos Fun type stuff. I should also mention that they're going to be recording live this afternoon at uh, roughly 3 p.m. Eastern for the Coco Show, but they're doing all their monthly shows starting at 2 p.m. Eastern. So that's what about half an hour from now. I think they're doing the Spectrum Show, the Atari, Coco. I can't remember if they've got a, their Ask Anything type thing going on as well. Um, but basically, there's a whole whack load of stuff. So if you're done here after the show and you want to catch up some more stuff, you can just hop over to their channel. In fact, I think we'll automatically segue from our channel to theirs once it's live. So once our stream shuts down, it should just pick up if everything's set up correctly. Also, they've started a brand new channel now uh, called the Streaming Channel, which they're basically taking, the, like they've done, been doing live streams usually on Friday nights for quite a long time now on all the different platforms uh, and, and just you know generally picking a theme, a different platform, a different type of game, whatever. And uh, they've, because Twitch is not something that stays around permanently. Basically, those will disappear after a certain amount of time. They have recordings of these recorded locally, and they've been trying to figure out, like, what can we do with these things? Because it doesn't really fit in with the regular show. So what they've decided to do is make an actual streaming channel where they'll throw these live streams up and you can catch them there, and they'll stay around. And uh, they're actually asking if anybody wants to contribute a live stream to put on that channel so that people can just, you know, bring it up and have it kind of running in the background type thing. So I know, like, can you do some live streams? Now you might keep those on your own channel, but for the people that do occasional ones or don't, you know, publicly promote them too much, it might be worth throwing something up on here. I know Flack has got a couple of his already on here too. And uh, one that Aaron just put up, and I can't remember how long ago we recorded this, probably been about a month or two, was a DICOM stream. So I'll just play a little bit of the intro to that. Tonight, we're going to try something I thought of on the spur of the moment, driving home in the snow, but it's long overdue. It's a color computer tribute to Diacom's products, a, a Canadian outfit that made games for the TR City color computer. Uh, we're going to go through as many of these as I can get to work on my authentic Coco. There it is. You can see it. Authentic. And of course, we'll be playing these games off the Coco SDC. These are a must purchase for your Coco 1, 2, 3. You can get them from my buddy, Frank, at RetroRewind.ca. Please, go there now. Use the promo code AMIGOS10. Save 10% on your cocoa goodies. Now, let's get into it, shall we? Now, I've got a list of all the... Or you can use Cocoa Talk, of course, after promo that prior show. But anyway. <laughs> Icom games in order. In alphabetical order. We're going to give these a shot. and assures me that it's top shelf. Uh, but uh, now I will mention his his capture hardware was actually having some problems with the artifact colors, and they're, they've been working on getting that fixed now for the next time they do a stream. So there's some of the games that actually got so bad he actually switched to just RGB basically to straight black and white. So you'll see a mixture of that on here. And when you get to Coco Free Games, of course, it's fine. 
So, but he, he covered a fair bit of them. There were some of the multi-disc ones. He couldn't remember how to get the uh, mounting the multi-disc uh, image ones and how to switch between them properly. So he will have to do a sequel to kind of finish and clean up the rest of them. But he goes through a pretty good wide gamut for almost an hour and a half. Uh, so a lot of fun. If you guys aren't familiar with DICOM products uh, games, they started around 85 by Dave Dyes and some other people, some other Canadians joined in and they actually had quite a bit of stuff ranging from arcade to RPGs like Ken's Playing Gates of Delirium. That's one of DICOM's games too. Um, but there's a lot of good ones on there. There's some 609 optimized ones. For those of you who put a 609 chip upgrade in your Coco 1, 2, or 3, there's some of those games that have been optimized to run quite a bit faster and smoother too. So anyway, it's, it's, it's a whole hour and a half of uh, Coco gaming goodness. And next up, I was, I was away when you played the promo. Is this the same promo that you got, you played before, Mark? Um, the promo was called, uh, uh, Are You Ready? That's the new realm. <clears throat> oh, okay. It's like, is it like part two to uh, Force yeah, of Doom? Yeah, it's a sequel. Sequel to Force of Doom. Okay. Okay. So basically that's already been covered. I don't have to play this again. Because this is basically just an animated Force of Doom tree with blinking eyes. And it's kind of meant to be a kind of a promo type thing. Actually, it's eight seconds I'll display it. But basically, it's just kind of showing without saying much. <laughs> he says basically something wicked, wicked this way comes. Are you ready? But it, it sounds like he's already kind of announced the details in the other ad you already played. So, Well, the bear is certainly happy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously a Coco fan. Okay, next up here, uh, Paul Ripke. Uh, in his very first post to the Coco Facebook group, and apparently he's been on for a little bit, he put up a disc image on the Coco Facebook group you can download, which is his own imagination of the Coco-based Wordle port called Colorful. He was going to name it actually Cocodol, and then he found that Rick Adams already done a Coco 3 one. Uh, and of course, I've made a Nitrous 9 version, which is way behind now, but there's versions of that already. So this is a Coco 1 and 2 unique version of it. So for the Coco 1 and 2 people are missing out on all the, the Wordle stuff here. You guys can do it now. Um, this runs in a P mode one screen so 128 by 96 for color mode um and actually it runs pretty decent he's he's done a pretty good job i've actually got a screenshot of it here um just to show you what it kind of looks like so you basically for those who are not familiar with the game there you've got these five squares which correspond to letters you have to guess a legitimate word you can't just randomly throw letters at it um they're color coded once you type them in as to whether you've got you know letters that are in the word but in the wrong spot or in the correct spot or are completely missing. He also keeps track in the lower right there of which letters you've already picked and, and used up. So you can try to guess words that don't have those ones that are missing already. Sometimes you kind of have to because you have to make a legitimate word. You can't just surrender letters. So in this particular screenshot here, I managed to solve it on the very last one with the word mulch. So anyway, for those of you that like the Wordle style games here, now all the Cocos are covered, and this should also work on the Dragon as well. So they, they've actually got their own version now as well, too. So, And it's got a pretty large dictionary. I think it's the uh, the dictionary that doesn't contain the winning words, I think it's over 12,000 words. I know the data file is like 30-some-odd granules, so it's pretty big. Um, so it's a pretty pretty extensive game, a lot of replayability because it, it picks a lot of words that you'll just never guess in a million years type thing, so... It's good to see that uh, we now have this uh, this very popular game. I, I know, like the Amigos Discord, actually has a separate channel devoted to Wordle, and I know Glenn Soggy has been playing Double Wordle and a bunch of other things too. So it's it's really popular. But uh, we've now got versions for every single Coco. And with all these Coco uh, Wordle things, you know, with the title issues, you know, I I'm surprised no one used you know for Coco Wordle maybe Curdle. <laughs> 
that's almost small enough to be an actual word in the game too. Anyway, that's available on Facebook. You download it now and, and give it a try. Uh, Gwen Major who runs a color computer archive site and also occasionally converts programs down from other uh, Dragon platforms to the Coco and vice versa, has actually taken the Tetris game that's a Semigraphics 24 game that was made for the Dragon back in 1991 and uses a lot of cool Semigraphics tech tricks where you're mixing the scan lines of the different characters to actually make Russian looking letters using the VDG font. Uh, unfortunately, this is running on the uh, T1 VDG emulated, so it's not quite right from what it would show up on the original VDG, which is what the Dragon had, the Coco 1, and earlier Coco 2s had. So this isn't quite represented, but you can kind of get an idea for it. And it's a pretty decent one. I, I think the only one that really goes beyond this is uh, Karen's latest one, Block Down. hope I'm remembering the name right off the top of my head. Um, where he's got some more modern Tetris play rules in it, because the Tetris has evolved over the years. It's not the exact same, but this was probably the best looking one most colorful using the semigraphics and also with the Roman style or uh, Russian style letters and stuff in it too, which is a token to where the game originated from. And uh, so he's actually got it fixed up. So it runs properly on the Coco one and two. So all the keyboard mapping stuff has been fixed from the dragon version to the Coco version, because of course they're mapped differently. So you can grab that. It's already up on the archive now. So if you want to give that one a try, if you have an original Coco one or an earlier Coco two that does not have the lowercase VDG, you'll get the full uh, special letter effect. You can kind of see in the word level, for example, uh, you can kind of see the E's rounded and stuff like that, which is not normal for a VDG chip. And that's by mixing scan lines of, color, of the different text characters. So pretty, pretty cool effect. One of the better uses of the Semigraphics 24 mode I've seen. And just to plug my own website here, uh, I actually, aside from last week where we put Rick Ulan's at risk, Coco 3 risk game, a couple of games that uh, were published or, or never been published before by an ex-roommate of mine from when we were young, Zero Hour from Nick. I've added three more. One was Juno because I didn't have it on the site yet, as you know, Ken wantedly pointed out. I'm sure he's trying to egg me on to get this done. Uh, but we also added a couple others. I finally put Force of Doom on here because Bruce had mentioned that I'd not put it up yet, and I had planned on doing it years ago, and I kept forgetting. And then uh, Snafus, which is the last of the Terry Steen games that I have from the T&D and the Chromoset days that he did programming for. So I think I've got all the games he's done, which I think six of them, six machine language games. And we are going to have Terry on the show. Date has not been set yet. He's kind of busy at the moment. So we're going to have to wait till stuff dies down for him. But uh, we're going to try to arrange to have one of his six games being the game of the week challenge when this interview is going to happen. So look forward to that. But if you guys want to grab the games, he's got like Grey Lady and Balloon Fire and a bunch of others there. So there's, there's six in total. All are out on the uh, computer archive too. So. I think you can look up by his author's name, so you can probably find them all pretty quick from there. Um, so that's that's my update there. What? But but do you have Nightmare Highway on your not yet. game site? Ah. I'm still trying to decide. I'm still trying to decide which one because there's a couple versions of it now too. So next up, we have the latest episode of Sibling Rivalry, who are our guests last week, uh, Tim and AJ, his sister. I'll play a little bit of the beginning here, but basically they're playing Dungeons, which is actually a port of a game that Karen Anscombe Sixty, who's actually in our chat right now, actually did for the Dragon and the Coco. Now they had some. It sounds like they were running a slightly older version. There's some weirdness with the title screen showing up just black and white with pieces of it missing. I'm not sure what the heck's going on there, uh, but it's got their usual fun banter. And this is a screen that's totally messed up for some reason. 
I'll fast forward some actual gameplay here. AJ, welcome to another episode. Here, it is like this is high energy, high action packed. You gotta get keys. Yeah, I don't know how much I'm gonna be talking. You got it. Oh, and if you run over things that like kill you, you lose points. Look at all these guys are killing me. I'm losing points. Oh my god. Oh, I found a key. Don't go in the hole. Don't go in the square. The red square of death. The red square of death. Yeah. You can't get keys and more life. Why can't I pick that key up? Why can't I? Because oh, I already door. have. I want to play the whole episode. You guys can go check it out. Um, Dungeons, for those of you who don't know, uh, I think it was originally on the Spectrum. I can't remember which was the first platform to get it, but it was ported much later by Karen and features like a good musical soundtrack. It supports some of the sound cards we've got for the Coco 2 uh, and supports up to four simultaneous players. Um, mix of keyboard and joystick, which is one of the very few Coco games. Gauntlet 2 is another one that does that. Gauntlet 2, I should say. So that, that's a rarity. But you can actually, if you can cram everybody around a table there with a couple of joysticks and two people crammed on the keyboard, you can actually get four players simultaneous. And Taylor and Amy, this is a, it's not technically a Coco um, episode here, but I did want to mention it. Um, so the latest video they just put out this morning is they've got a, an SD card solution for their Spectrum. And they decided to try to some games, because of course they got the SD card with all the games, just like you can get with the Coco SDC. And ironically enough, every game they picked, except for one, is also available in the Coco and the Dragon. So uh, basically what it shows me is that a really popular or a really good game, if it's cross-platform and done well as far as a port goes, then it doesn't matter what platform it's on. It, it, it's a great game regardless. Uh, one of the ones they played was Chucky Egg. And I know when we had our dragon special where the dragon people, the guests themselves, and we had almost a dozen of them, got to pick what was their favorite dragon game back in the day. Chucky Egg was the one most voted for. And it's not even one that was, you know, started on the dragon. So that was one of the ones they picked here too, as well as, you know, Jet Set, Willie, Manic Miner, et cetera. So I suggested to them in a, in a chat message, or was it a chat message? Yeah, I think a chat message here on Discord that they should maybe do a follow-up one and kind of go through the exact same games on the Coco slash Dragon and kind of compare them because that'd be kind of interesting to see. Um, so I, I won't play in the video. I'll let you guys go check that out yourselves, but uh, you'll see some familiar game names on there for sure. And that's the end of my Game On News for the week. Well, hang on, gotta come back. <laughs> <laughs> Caught me taking this little break. Wake up, Mark. <laughs> Wake up, Mark. Run, oh, I'm run. awake. I'm awake. I'm awake. You finished too quickly, Curtis. Wake, wake up to a nightmare. <laughs> I'm trying to get done before we you know, start worrying about watching all the live shows over at the Amigos, too. So. Oh, that's okay. The Amigos have been already live for a while. Yeah, they got the Spectrum show going. Yep. The Coco show is coming up in about... I'm not quite sure how long, but it's 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 I think the third one on the on the queue today. Now I know uh, we we got project updates and acquisitions, et cetera, but I do know that uh, Nick had a hardware question, I believe, that he wanted to ask. So I thought oh, throw that yeah, in. Yeah, no. Uh, with all the talk we were doing before about the composite, and now that we've got Mark here as well, um, one of the things I've always hated about the the Coco is the. Uh, the composite video is terrible. It's the worst composite I've ever seen on any 8-bit computer. And that is understandable because, as Mark said, they had to add in the uh, ability to do the uh, artifacting from the Coco 1 and 2. 
So it was purposely made that way, so that works, which is fine. Um, but what if you don't want that slurry, blurry, terrible composite <laughs> output? Uh, I thought, well, is there a way to get rid of the modifications that were done to the Coco 3 to get a clean co uh, composite output on it? So when Mark said that the Coco was originally didn't have color you know, uh, on composite output, uh, and that technically is the correct output because it's not meant to have artifacting, artifacting as bad as what we're seeing, or bad or good, depending on what, you, what you're after, and that it was modified to give you a more accurate Coco 1 and 2 artifacting. What was that modification that was done? Was it internal to the GIMI chip, or was it part of the circuitry after the gimme chip that led that led to the RF modulator and the output was that something because in the schematics for the Coco three RG uh, Coco three uh, outputs there are various capacitors and a transistor and a resistor that leads that that takes the composite output are the modifications done there like is could it be a change of the capacitors and the resistors or whatever in order to remove that that artifact ability or to that level because what i'm thinking is that if that's the case is it possible then to put a switch to be able to turn off that modification and turn it back or yeah, turn it off if you want a clean composite output and don't care so much about getting all the artifacting but you want a cleaner composite output or you just flick it on and you put the mod back so you do still get the artifacting. Is it possible to do that? Well, or can you remember rather? It, 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 here's the deal about artifacting is uh, that's ju it's just uh, video noise. And uh, it was in there originally. It wasn't added in. Or they did everything they could to get rid of it uh, because the people who worked on the original color computer didn't even know that that mode existed. Uh, all they knew about was the green background and the white background mode. They didn't know about the black background mode. Uh so they actually tried to get rid of uh, noise, but they were unsuccessful at doing it. That's why the artifacting mode exists to begin with. But uh, you could put some more uh, filtering on the uh, uh, RF out and uh, probably get rid of it and have, have yourself a switch, but somebody would have to build a, piece of hardware to do that right well um if i can just share a screen is that a schematic come up on the yeah okay so this is the area that i'm looking at so the composite output straight from the gimme chip if i go down a bit so yeah from the gimme chip there is a composite video pin and that leads to this circuitry here so I was wondering, this collection of resistors, capacitors, 
transistor and a diode. I was wondering if any of that has an effect on the artifacting, uh, or whether that promotes the artifacting. And I thought, is it possible to change something here for anyone who knows about this sort of hardware? Because I don't. Um, can they modify this so that it cuts back the artifacting so you do get a cleaner composite for for if, um, if you're trying to just do the pure black and white or, or yeah green. well it doesn't have to be pure black and white it just has to be less blurry and slurry on the colors uh, like a composite well, on the coco 3 is really bad compared to everything else i've seen yeah and I, I, mean, thought, I thought it was because of this modification yeah, mo most of that uh, circuitry right there are all uh, filters. So it's just a matter of getting uh, a, a couple of uh, additional, you know, uh, better filtering than probably those circuits. But I couldn't tell you what it would be to right. get there. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, probably changing the capacitors and resistors. Uh, it, you know, those RC constants and, uh, you know, it just comes down to you, you need to add in more filtering to get rid of noise. Right. Yeah. Well, now, some of the stuff is controlled within the gimme itself, too. Like, unlike the Cocoa 1 and 2, you, you can control the artifact phasing, for example, from within the gimme itself where you can switch between whether you're booting up with a red default as color one or a blue default as color one. So I'm assuming there's some of it must still be internal to the gimme. You can even turn off the, the color burst. Yeah. Yeah. But well, yeah, I, mean, I, I thought, don't want to really change that. It's just that the, like, like Mark said, the filtering, maybe the filtering has been adjusted to give you the best artifacting. And I was just thinking anyone, this is a little, sideline challenge for anyone out there who understands this sort of stuff to maybe improve this area of the schematic to work out how to get better filtering so it's a cleaner composite and then we can just put a switch in there to, to revert it back because obviously some people do want the artifacting obviously to to run coco one and two games you know correctly with the cut the proper artifacted colors but for those who don't um i thought you could just flick a switch yeah i'd be surprised if steve york didn't play with that at some point in his career right well, i'll mention yeah. that alan from ac's 8-bit zone mentions here in the chat he said the color burst signal is what you want to control with that off the ntsc display will not interpret the monitor chrome dots as color and then marco yeah. Bowser, you added something about the apple too because it, it did their artifacting very similar to us yeah, oh, but yeah. They, you still do need the color burst, though. You can't turn that off. We don't want monochrome video. We still do want the color. We just don't want it to be so so blurred or or whatever. We, and that's where I thought maybe some of this is what's what's adding a bit of that blur to get better artifacting. Yeah. So I thought the original it, it, no, the Sorry. original Apple II motherboards didn't have the color burst killer, and so when they were in text mode, all the letters would be fringed. Yeah, and so the next revision, the very the second revision of the board, revision one, they added the killer. So when it goes into text mode, it kills it. So it's basically monochrome. They didn't have color text. Only when you went to graphics mode did it deactivate that and the color burst go through. Anyway, you know, 
you, you'd probably be better off uh, taking the RGB signal and uh, 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 and reworking that into uh, uh, RF modulator. And that's what a PAL Coco 3 does. Yeah. Uh, anyone who's got a PAL Coco 3, that's exactly what it does. That's why we don't get that artifacting. We do get a a clean composite output but on an american ntsc coco it doesn't have that it goes through this so that yeah i just thought someone out there who understands all this you know resistor capacitor filtering and or whatever um maybe they can see a, a way they can improve it and then just work out to put a switch to yeah, turn that, it on and off. The, there are RGB to composite uh, boxes out there. I mean, have you ever tried using one of those? Oh, look, I, I do actually run RGB. I prefer RGB. But um, no, I'm just saying if you wanted to experiment with getting better composite, uh, you can get RGB to composite yeah. boxes out there. They're not expensive. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, and the Gibby Exacores actually supports it within itself. It actually creates the artifact colors and stuff on a cleaner signal, and makes the uh, actual palette between RGB and composite based on the RGB one, so that you can just take an RGB game and it runs fun and composite. See, the only so. time I I actually use comp well, want to use composite is if I want to do a direct video capture from the a real Coco Three into my PC's capture card. But NTSC, capturing the NTSC composite is awful. It, it's just terrible. But on my PAL, which generates the composite off the RGB, like Mark said, it's good. It's very clean. But, you know, I, I do want to get... But no artifact colors if you want them. Yeah. Well, but, well, so I thought, I mean, yeah. NTSC is a crappy standard. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yes. I know you're you're <laughs> off to a bad start already. I know, but you can, I, you can dedicate a machine to NTSC and get good color out of it and a nice sharp signal, or you can dedicate a machine to RGB and get a nice signal. But you can't really do both at a budget. I mean, I think gimmicks did it, but they probably had two entirely separate video chains that had yeah. nothing to do with each other. <laughs> Anyway, that was my idea with all this talk about the uh, artifacting and composite. I just thought, well, is there a way to clean up the uh, NTSC composite? Yeah. So we get I'll, I'll mention a couple of uh, things from chat here that just came in. So Alan mates he's 8-Bit Zone, says, okay, if you still want the color, then the problem is in the signal generated inside the gimme, you may be hard-pressed to improve it externally. And yeah. then Rocky Hill, Pedro Pena, says, with the RGB to HDMI converter, you can have a clean HDMI output that simulates composite. Yeah. Anyway, that was my. Um, yeah. Hang on, I'll try to close my screen. Yeah, that was my um, deep thought moment this morning. <laughs> so NTSC never the same color. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And the VDG, I mean, the P mode four was defined as being black and white, or sorry, buff and white, uh, or green and, or sorry buff and black or green and black period and the, you know the fact we got colors out of it at all is just a complete accident well i thought they they did tweak even even that specifically to allow the best artifacted colors to come out 
I thought. I don't know. Mark might. No, no. no uh, it was uh, completely accidental. That's it why was. we have the uh, reset thing with uh, flipping the colors uh, because it's uh, it, it was never actually a planned part of the design. Right. Yeah, and from what I remember from reading the history of it, they were basically, and also from talking on Mark's interview, it sounds like the Coco 1, it was complete accidental, and at some version of the Coco 2, that, that's where the meeting with John Roach happened, where the, you know, it disappeared and they had to put it back in, or is it the Deluxe, maybe I'm thinking of, where they had to kind of put it back in, because all these, you know, hundreds of backwards compatible games suddenly became black and white. Yeah, they, they just, uh, the people in R&D didn't like the idea that uh, there was noise in the computer, and they didn't understand that that's noise that gives it color. So, yeah, and by that time, even a lot of you know Tandy games, Raider Shack games for the Coco had been using artifact colors like Temple of Brom and Double Back and Castle Guard and a whole bunch of others. I mean, you were going to screw up your own market if you if you didn't put that in. the The, the funny thing is, is that uh, it was still in uh, that noise was. Uh, still in the model 1000s and people could actually get more colors on NTSC than hooking it to a monitor out of a 1000 as well. Yeah, I remember the comps on the IBM PC did that. And there's a lot of demos that have been written using that exact same technique to get yeah. more than the face four colors. So, Now, the artifacting will also work for Coco 3 proper modes, proper like what we saw with... Um, the two Roberts? Yeah, the two Roberts. So whether whether cleaning up the composite will give them cleaner color mixing, I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, there's definitely some uh, discussion in chat here, like Alan speculating in a few things, and I'm sure Pedro will join in too, David Ladd and others. So that might be something to carry on to Discord, uh, where a lot of our hardware gurus hang out to see if there's anything that could be done to kind of clean it up at least a bit. Uh, yeah. on the Coco 3 using that circuit, that filtering circuit that you're mentioning there. I don't think we'll solve it on the show. So, But yeah, right. if some of these hardware guys want to experiment and let us know the results, that'd be awesome. So I guess next up would be project updates and acquisitions, which I have no idea if anybody actually has any. Obviously, uh, Bruce Moore has an upcoming sequel to Forest of Doom coming out that he's got a couple of promo videos out, and I'm assuming that's going to be announced at the Fest uh, in May. So once again, to plug Coco Fest, May 14th, 15th, Chicago, be there, be square. Uh, does anybody else have any other updates uh, or acquisitions that they want to talk about? I got a new coil full of switches for my uh, keyboard fix and Coco 2 keyboard fix coming soon to a Coco Fest near you. So that was fun. Cool. Any, any further progress on figuring out the network card thing? Um, I've ordered five more that JLC has restocked since the order that doesn't work. So I've ordered five more to see if we're back on to working things. So we'll see. Silicon. Yeah, exactly. I, th I, I think the last ones I had were an older version of the chip. Maybe they were, you know, retests and deemed okay and they work sometimes. But we'll see. I, I think we're back on track. Okay, That'd be nice if it's just a bad silicon version. So, 
Now, is that something you can actually specify to a supplier? I want this version of the chip, not no, no. It's it's a little series number that doesn't isn't doesn't show up anywhere, nowhere where you buy it. Um, the the thing I think significant is I had a certain series, a later series, a later series, nothing, an earlier series, which usually works. And so now we'll see what comes next. I think this may have been, okay, we, we rummaged through the junk bin and these seem okay kind of situation. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm not really sure, but. We'll I know that that some, so, it's bad to hear you're at least making progress and figuring out what's going on. Go ahead. I, know I, that have, so, I know that some vendors will let you specify because a lot of times when you test something, especially if it's mission critical or life-threatening, you know, it's tested against a particular oh, yeah, vision. I am, I am at the bottom of the bucket here. No, I know. I know. For the cheapest assembly I can get, because otherwise <laughs> I can't afford to sell them. Um, but uh, let's see. Um, I had a thought and I forgot it. Um, I've lost a lot of them over the years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I was so much better when I was so much younger. Um, let's see what's coming up. So we, we have new ones coming. If they work, life is good. Oh, yeah, I'm going to bring whatever I've got to the fest. If anyone has a cocoa at the fest, we could plug one in and tell you, because the ones that work, work. I mean, it's if you can initialize the chip, it works forever on that cocoa. So if you have a cocoa and you might want to plug a network card into it, I can tell you for sure or not whether it works at the fest. And then you can take it home with full knowledge that you're in good shape. And if it doesn't, I, I will buy it back from you. So I'm not going to refuse to sell anyone one if they're willing to do without 50 bucks for a month. If it doesn't work, then that's fine. Because I have never seen a case where one failed. It either works with your cocoa or it doesn't. And if you're one of the lucky 80% where it works, you're good. And if you're one of the 20% where it doesn't, you're bad. Because I don't have any more of the earlier prototypes that run with everything I've thrown them against. <laughs> so there's my story. And I'm sticking with it until I get more parts. You know, okay, theoretically, well, there might be just a different timing delay. You might just a different version of the GAL firmware might might do the trick eh, it's just Maybe. not so good yeah mm. i mean we, we've played with every timing we can do and i can make it work better and worse with more or less cocos but there is no combination that works with everything with this lot number of chips so it's disappointing because out of the 25 chips that are made 15 of them are out of this bad lot number mm. Okay. Well, thank, thanks for the update. Hopefully uh, that is the problem. And at least you know what the solution is. You just have to try to get something that's not part of that lot number. Unfortunately, you can't right, control right. ordering them. So, so buy a keyboard kit to finance my mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody else got any project updates or acquisitions they would like to talk about? Nick, have you purchased your Lamborghini yet? Um, no, not yet. I haven't. <laughs> Sounds oh, like man, you probably put a down, a down payment, payment down. On the <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, in the chat, uh, Chris Duries, Dries, my apologies. Um, 
Got a, a floppy controller that has a toggle switch uh, that goes to one of the pins on the ROM. And he wants to know what the purpose of that would have been. And I'm thinking typically that would have been for multiple DOSs. Uh, yeah, on a larger chip. ROM chip, like switching yeah. 8K yeah. images out of a 16K chip or something, probably. Yep. yep. Yes, the J&M uh, <clears throat> uh, controllers, um, there's a revision that has that switch right on it to flip between the two different ROMs. But uh, one of the common mods was to add an extra switch to then on the 27XX series socket, you could then add... Um, two 8K banks. So that way you could do, you know, like a standard disk basic and then uh, a modified disk basic with six millisecond step rate um, and then drive two and three or the backsides of drive zero and one for double-sided drives. You know, there's all kinds of things that that was used for. Yeah, ADOS. Uh, Rocky Hill says he needs a keyboard kit for his Melty keyboard. Yeah, I've got to figure out if a Melty keyboard is exactly the same as a not Melty. Well, there's some keyboards I've seen, early ones, they didn't have screws in the back. They had the uh, melted pegs, and so the back doesn't come off. Yeah, that would be a whole different kit. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah, the IBM Type M's are like that. When they uh, disassemble them, they actually have to melt those off, and then they have to tap them and put screws in when they put them back together. Makes retrofitting them kind of tedious, but right, right. You know, this, IBM this, Type this M, twenty-five a... million repetitions. It's worthwhile. Well, right. How many screws would you need to buy again? <laughs> Eighteen <laughs> uh, by twenty-five bunch. million. Uh, yeah. No, well, twenty-five screw. millions. The cycles on the keys, so it's worth rebuilding oh, them. Right. You know. Any other project updates acquisitions ready on the panel today? I will mention, I just took a quick look at the Amigos channel and they finished the Spectrum show. They're currently doing the Atari show. Coco show's next. So if we have nothing else, I wouldn't mind wrapping up and we can kind of catch that live and people can segue over. Yeah, I think we've pretty much covered everything. I check All off. the out row. Okay. One of these buttons, where is it? There wow, it is. just over two hours. This concludes another episode of Cobra Talk, the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Calore computer, MC10, and Dragon systems. For all things Cobra Talk, visit us on the web at cocotalk.live. We'd love to hear from you. Send feedback, suggestions, even segments via email to cocotalk at cocotalk.live. Consider supporting the show with a purchase of merchandise from our retro swag shop at 8bit256.com. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, click on the Patreon link on our website, cocotalk.live. Cocotalk would not exist without the community, its cast, crew, and contributors. Thanks go to Alan Murphy, Amigos Retro Gaming, Bill Noble, Brian Joyce, Brian Weaver, Curtis Boyle, D. Bruce Moore, Danny O'Connor, David Ladd, Eric Canales, George Jansen, Grant Leedy, James Diffendapper, Jason Reichert, Jim Brain, Ken Reichert, Ken Waters, Mark Bosley, Mark Overholzer, Mikey Furman, Mr. Dave 6309, 
Nick Morentes, Nick Morota, Nick Morota, Nick Morota, Paul Fiscarelli, Richard Lorbieski, Rick Adams, Rick Ewan, Rob Inman, Ron Delvaux, Samuel Gimes, Sloopy Malibu, Steve Bjork, Terry Steggy, Tom C., and many, many more. Please help support the Coco community. A list of various contributors and resources are available at imacoconut.com. That's I-M-A-C-O-C-O-N-U-T dot com. The original Coco Talk theme song is copyright 2008 by D. Bruce Moore and Greg Sheeler. The new Coco Talk theme song is copyright 2020 by D. Bruce Moore. Both are mixed, mastered, and produced by D. Bruce Moore. Coco forever! Okay. That, uh, we're back. Um, any last thoughts? Push the button, Frank. Okay. I will just mention that we've got a couple of interviews we're trying to line up. No firm dates yet, so they probably won't be in the near, near future. I also don't want them to interfere with, like, Coco Fest itself. <laughs> so, obviously, it won't be that weekend. Unless we do some live thing. So, uh, uh, we'll announce as soon as we get firm dates uh, confirmed. Okay. Say goodbye, everybody.